This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Today, we're going to do the Unabomber Manifesto. Our theme is modernity. Helen, kick us off. Okay, so I finally had time to write something, and I may be all a little bit carried away. Anyway, uh, there is no going back. The womb was a tomb, and our first breath thrusts us inexorably towards another kind of death. As we leave behind one death and lurch towards another, we are spellbound by the intuition that the first was an oasis of calm, a utopia beyond antagonism, and we often spend our lives searching for ersatz experiences or portals to this past. But it was a past in which we were dead to ourselves, and our frantic search is the underpinning of of the ideology of promise, of death drive, of market capitalism, because we cannot close the gap of lack other than in dying. And actually, you can't really either there, but never mind. (laughs) As we enter into subjectivity, as we are socialized, to borrow Kaczynski's own term, a defense is formed against this intractably terrifying human experience. Socialization includes the the formation of an ego, which induces the fracture of subjectivity into the superego, the ego, and the id. The tension of a drive for subjective wholeness explodes and settles into a crack that cuts across everything, the unconscious. As the ego solidifies in more or less robust ways, according to the nature of our individual primary experiences, we are left with the capacity to navigate socialization in more or less functional ways. But there is a contradiction in socialization. The greater the function, so-called, the greater the tension resisting the crack. There is always the itching of a repressed antagonism within it, something that is often felt most acutely on a collective level by those who were not able to be socialized. Ideology is the lie of socialization, bewitching us with the notion that there is no contradiction or in terms of market capital, that the intractable contradiction can be overcome just as the gap of lack can be closed. Ted Kaczynski, psychotic in his form of subjectivity, we can perhaps um, claim from reading the manifesto, is not endowed with a strong ego boundary, this primary necessary lie. Unable to be socialized, he is overwrought by the antagonism of mystified contradiction. It is glaringly obvious to him. He feels it in his very bones. He has no way Uh, He has no subjective capacity to neuter it, to digest it, to confront it in fully reasonable and rational ways. In reading his manifesto, we have a sense that Kaczynski must, according to the virulence of his subjective experience, embody and express the antagonism of the hypocrisy of neoliberal capital, specifically its ideological concealment through through the culture of the so-called liberal left. Like Todd Phillips' Joker, Kaczynski's contingent subjective and material experiences drive him to become the gristle of the denied real in late 20th century American corporate and university culture. In some sense, he is the Lacanian Santon, a symptom and a quote-unquote saintly man, metaphorically speaking. He is the embodiment of a denied antagonism within a culture that has never done denial any better. If there is any structure in capitalism, it is this, denial. He is a messenger indicating a collective disquiet in the face of the hypocrisy of surplus value. He enacts a crime against the system because he cannot tolerate the crimes within the system. But surely Kaczynski is more than just a victim of contingency, of his inadequate primary experiences and frustrating professional ones. Kaczynski is most likely psychotic, yes, but he is also a speaking subject and is therefore, by definition, a divided one, an ambivalent one. Having gone through a second birth, a birth into language, he is demonstrably capable of thought. He is therefore capable of ethics and emotion. He can, with help perhaps, overcome his need to kill. Even within the psychotic Kaczynski, there is a potential for arriving at a capacity to tolerate contradiction. This can be achieved in various ways, through the technology of reason, through analysis, at times through the temporary crutch of external factors such as medication. In any event, there is a potential for healing in the psychotic, just as there is in the neurotic. The process might look different individually and structurally, 
But an arrival at something more reasonable can have the same eventual result, a withdrawal of libido from the promise of totality, which is the same religious belief that underpins the market system. We can go from having a libido that believes on behalf of the market to one beyond belief, one that actually undermines it. To cast the psychotic as essentially other, as solely a bearer of a collective truth endowed with special powers of wisdom and insight that come with an imagined ability to speak at the same time as not being divided, is to fall into the Orientalist trap. The Orientalist, the colonialist, the capitalist, believes that there's, there exists a group of humans beyond antagonism, a group that is closer to some essential promise of unity at the heart of reality, a group whose essential subjective experience offers a means for us to overcome antagonism, to close the gap of lack. The promise of psychoanalysis is different from this. It is an overcoming, it is coming to be, it is a coming to being okay with antagonism <clears throat> rather than overcoming it. This essentially transcendent group is one for the capitalist to conquer, one whom to one to whom to bend the knee, a group to raise up in their wisdom and debase in their lack of moral complexity. In this sense, schizoanalysis is just another manifestation of run-of-the-mill neoliberal logic. There is no hierarchy of transcendence in the various subjective forms. There is no betterment in the psychoticizing of society, no emancipation here. Psychotics are also divided. Psychotics also attempt to cure in the total. Indeed, many psychotics invest or in fact overinvest in ideology and in socialization in response to a missing piece in their initial attempt at socialization. Neurotic, psychotic, perverse, we all lack, and we are all therefore prone to finding ways to fill it. Some of us with an intensity that speaks to our fragility in the face of contradiction. There is no hierarchy of transcendence in the subjective experience, but in our broken universe, in our ordinarily unhappy world, in our imminent transcendence, in our pasture of the living flower, there is truth. Perhaps we should also say that there is not a hierarchy of truths, but there are things that are true and things that are not true. The near impossibility of discernment, particularly in our mystified market system, leads us often to replace truth-seeking with the convenient crutches of these ideological hierarchies of inaccurate moral codes. Capitalism always contorts itself and contains now anti-capitalism within it. The promise that one group or structure is magically beyond capitalism. But, you're all, but we are all equal in our speech, despite the variety of our subjective structures. We are all equal in our tendency towards capitalist libido, despite our co-ops, our professed love of the environment, our neo-familial structures, the nature of our villages, our anarchism, and the gods, gods we may or may not worship. If we speak, we are born twice. Because when we are born... We are, but because when we are born twice, we are alienated, and in our inevitable search for reintegration into a utopia that never was, we are guilty. It is only in acknowledging the universal of lack of sin, of guilt, that we can find ways to sin more healthily, to manage our collective existence in the chaosmos in ways that are more truthful, less repressive, less obfuscatory of the contradiction, and therefore less prone to a drive towards death. When we engage in a search for wholeness, we engage in utopian thinking, and utopias are, in the works of Mark, words of Marx, always reactionary. We exist because of antagonism. It underpins everything. In casting antagonism aside, utopias confirm that they cannot exist. They are only sustained by contingent, corrigible enemies who cast their existence as a shadow. In order to get out, to get to our imagined utopia, we must get rid of the enemy who stands between us and it. But in eradicating the enemy, we eradicate the utopia because it was only ever in existence behind the illusion of the enemy. Just as the neurotic underpits underpins market capitalism with his libidinal utopian investment in the ideology of promise. So the psychotic Kaczynski underpins the same ideology in his totalitarian grasp for squaring the circle of, for the, uh, squaring the circle of his own flavor of intolerable contradiction. He feels he must rid the world of the dishonest professionals and corporatists whose hypocrisy, his openness to the universe makes it impossible for him to resist. Kaczynski's paranoiac quest in an attempted solution to the subjective intensity of the 
sorry, I'm reading a bit too fast. <laughs> Kaczynski's paranoid quest is an attempted solution to the subjective intensity of his world. The violence of his gestures speaks to the violence of his inner life, but he is engaged in the same ideological fantasy as the liberal so-called leftists he so strongly admonishes. Kaczynski posits a world beyond antagonism, just beyond the horizon, a return to nature to a world beyond or before industrialization. Whilst Kaczynski is correct in his assessment that industrialization has alienated the human subject in ways never seen before, whilst he is correct in identifying the hypocrisy and violence of capitalism and the lie of both commodity fetishism and the so-called quote-unquote left wing of capital, he is just as wrong as those he critiques in his utopian alternative. And the intensity of his desperation to engender that utopia is manifested in his horrifying murderous impulses. He must live a life clean of antagonism, alone in the woods, protected by, from the messy subjectivity of the other, distinguished and separated in his own perceived superiority. But those that he criticises, those he murders and attacks, are necessary to him. They sustain the fantasy of a return to nature. If only these people change their views, if only I send a strong enough message, if only enough people read my manifesto, then we can return. But there is no going back. He has picked an impossible task that will inevitably lead him to imprisonment and infamy, convenient and necessary obstacles perhaps, sought out by his very acts, sustaining the certainty of his fantasy as he remains forever in jail. Through proper treatment, one can address one that addresses the rational aspect of Kaczynski's sub subjectivity. He could be endowed with the capacity to confront contradiction in healthier ways. As such, he is not so far, philosophically speaking, from the neurotic. And the dialectical universalist psychoanalytic approach to addressing the brokenness of his subjectivity still applies. The pretty face of oblivion seeking, oblivion seeking draws us away from the messy but ultimately emancipatory work of the dialectical universal, of ideology critique, of finding our place in the chaosmos in ordinary unhappiness. Some of us need more help than others in arriving at a place at that place because of our transition, sorry, because our transition to subjectivity was inadequate or indeed too much. For every speaking subject, there is no going back. The only certainty is a second death, but before it, there is a way of going forward in truth, and that truth is contradiction. It is only through embracing antagonism, and for many, first of all, if they can, coming to a place where an embrace of contradiction is made possible, that we can escape the doubly virulent effect of antagonism when it is repressed and the equally virulent effect of it when the attempt is to chase it entirely away. All right, Nina, you're up. Well, um, I must say I, I, I really like the Unabomber Manifesto. Um, I mean, of course I do. I uh, obviously don't approve of his um, uh, bombing campaign. Um, though I do, I do think we have to take into consideration that that what what Ted Kaczynski really wanted was to be published, um, and that perhaps the the bombing campaign is a is a, con a convoluted way of um, getting the newspapers to print his manifesto, which they which they did right in ninety five. So the Washington Post did publish the manifesto. I I, don't, I haven't seen it in the Washington Post edition, though. I wish I had a copy. <laughs> Um, but this idea that they were going to that he said he would stop his bombing campaign if the news if one of the new, main newspapers printed his um, manifesto, um, which is you know thirty five thousand words, um, it's a bit cranky in places. But on the other hand, a lot of it reads like Illich, and he was you know obsessed with Elul, and uh, it's very close to a lot of uh, writers who are you know very seriously thinking um, about technology and the critique of technology and the alternatives. And uh, I also very much approve of his 
critiques of leftism, which I I, I believe since nineteen five are only more relevant, and uh, everyone should should check them out. Um, I think he's correct to say that leftism is unlikely to give up technology um, because it's too valuable a source of collective power. And I think one of the interesting things about the manifesto for me, apart from the kind of maybe more obvious kind of, you know, almost post-Frankfurt school kind of Illichian, Alulian critique of technological society and the critique of industrialization and the question of scale um, and then the kind of um, possible alternatives is his diagnosis of um, political strategy in a certain way. And and obviously he suggests that revolution is uh, more... um, necessary than reform because what he suggests is that industrial society is doomed to um, continue, like it's not going to change. There is a kind of technological determinism in his image and that and that it's better to kind of stop it sooner rather than later. So in a way, he kind of has a strange uh, accelerated anti-accelerationism against the the kind of uh, development of technology. So it's almost like a kind of ripping the plaster off idea, I suppose he he, he suggests, um, before technology kind of gets more and more, um, uh, in pervades more and more of our everyday life, which, again, he's not wrong about, obviously. Um, and But at the same time, it's also a kind of diagnosis of this uh, supposed opposition, which is not in actuality any kind of opposition and i and i think that point he makes about um leftism uh, desiring the use of technology for its own ends has been borne out completely in the mainstream leftist arguments that we see around things like automation um and platforms and fully automated luxury communism and these kind of positions which are promoted by major publishing houses like verso um and in a way represent a kind of um techno-friendly or even technophilic um, supposed leftism, which I think is very well diagnosed by Kaczynski. So I think we can take seriously what he says here um, without, um, of course, uh, agreeing with his methods in real life. I, I don't think that sending parcel bombs to people involved in technology um would even bring about the things that, of course, and it didn't, would would even bring about the kind of changes that he wishes. And those sorts of gestures do not inaugurate revolutionary um, moments. They they simply kill people. Um, and I, I'm very intrigued by this moment of publication. And I wonder if newspapers would do anything similar today. So, so Janet Reno, from what I can understand, and this is just largely from reading Wikipedia, so there's probably more complex reasoning going on about what why they published it. But Janet Reno is the Attorney General at this time, and she thought that it was a good idea to publish it, um, even though it was kind of under duress. So the idea that Kaczynski was saying, I'll stop my campaign, which has after all been going on since 1978, um, if you publish my my paper, and I, and again, I'm very intrigued by this idea that that you know <laughs> that this is actually all about just being read, you know, and I wonder what extreme lengths other people have gone to to get their material out there, you know. I I, I think that's an interesting aspect of it too, um, and I think the idea that Kaczynski presents nature 
um, as the alternative and a kind of uh, re- reinvigorated image of nature. He says we have to have a kind of positive um, opposition. It can't just be a critique of industrial society. Um, is something that I I feel very strongly. But this would obviously put me in the psychotic camp <laughs> um, as well, which is which is I suppose fine. Um, I'm okay <laughs> with that. Um, and <laughs> yeah, I I I don't know. It's I think it's 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 well worth well worth reading as a, as a kind of as a, as a as a manifesto and i i do think um i'd like to yeah maybe go into more detail about his his diagnosis of leftism and the problems not only their kind of commitment to technology but also the kind of psychological aspects it might be interesting to pursue those all right now it's my turn in his manifesto ted kaczynski the unabomber argues that human beings are slowly losing their freedom to a technological system In his view, human beings must go through a power process. They have to set goals for themselves and achieve those goals through their own effort. Kaczynski argues that these goals must be difficult enough to be challenging, but easy enough that individuals can achieve them on their own or with the help of a small group. If the goals are too difficult, people get frustrated, and if the goals are too easy, they aren't satisfied. Kaczynski suggests that the goals that best fit the bill are those related to survival. For a primitive person, it's hard to get food, water, and shelter, but it's doable. Modern people cannot go through the power process in this way because it's too easy for them to obtain the means of subsistence. Going to the store or going to work to pay a mortgage is insufficiently challenging. Instead, modern people adopt what he calls surrogate activities. These activities are sufficiently difficult but Kaczynski finds them contemptible. In his view, these surrogate activities don't really matter. Video games are an obvious example. They're challenging, but the sense of achievement they give is not tied to survival. Kaczynski takes this critique much further. Everything that is not tied directly to survival counts as a surrogate activity. For him, when we write books or make movies, we're engaged in surrogate activities. Scientific research is a surrogate activity. Participating in mass movements is a surrogate activity. Kaczynski argues that the technological system induces us to embrace surrogate activities and that the surrogate activities we embrace tend to contribute to the further strengthening of the technological system. The scientist's work is used to further develop the system's ability to socialize or genetically modify people, while the artist is enlisted in making propaganda and in distracting people with entertainment. In his view, The surrogate activities are not only contemptuous in themselves, they aid and abet a system which slowly erodes human freedom. Kaczynski argues that any attempt to restore freedom requires the abolition of the whole technological system because all of the parts of the system depend on one another. He also argues that anyone who has any other social goals, apart from dismantling the technological system, can be tempted into using the technological system to achieve those goals. He therefore does not trust any person who champions cultural causes, especially leftists who emphasize gender, race, and sexuality. Like Karl Marx and Max Weber, Kaczynski argues that human beings have been instrumentalized by an impersonal system. He differs from Marx insofar as Marx believed all economic systems instrumentalize the individual. The slave and the serf were not free to go through the power process either. For Marx, dismantling the technological system cannot emancipate the worker because a regression from capitalism would entail the reintroduction of feudalism or slavery. Marx also believed that it was impossible to deindustrialize 
in part because deindustrialization is anti-competitive. A state which deindustrializes weakens itself relative to other states, increasing the chances that it will be colonized by those other states. And what happens to colonies? Their imperial masters inevitably introduce industrial technology, and if necessary, they do so at gunpoint. For Marx, the only way to emancipate the individual was to somehow commandeer the technological system for the express purpose of emancipating the individual. Kaczynski differs from Weber insofar as Weber believed that the technological system was necessary to preserve order and create the conditions for freedom. For Weber, freedom entails the ability to choose one's values for oneself. To do this, a person needs an education which familiarizes them with many different options and equips them with the capacity to choose. They also need the political maturity to recognize that their freedom to choose depends on the maintenance of the system that creates and facilitates that choice. Each of these reviews relies on a different conception of freedom. Marx is interested in freedom as non-domination, as freedom from exploitative labor relations. Weber is interested in the freedom to choose values for oneself. For Kaczynski, freedom means being in control of the life and death issues of one's existence. He expressly links this to issues of food, clothing, shelter, and defense. This is a concept of freedom which heavily focuses on autonomy. The emphasis on autonomy in the history of thought is itself a modern emphasis. It was the creation of the technological system of capitalism in the modern state, which led moral and political philosophers to place emphasis on autonomy. Autonomy as a value is a reaction to the changes wrought by this system, but there are not many primitive, ancient, or medieval peoples who value it. Autonomy is not one of the cardinal virtues. I suspect Kaczynski would argue that virtue has dropped away in large part because the virtue discourse is a discourse about how to exercise autonomy on the assumption that you already have it. But the free Greek or free Roman citizen was not someone who used his own body to obtain the means of subsistence. He had slaves for that. The Greeks and Romans considered themselves free insofar as they held the political status of citizen and insofar as their state remained politically independent. Roman libertas is not the freedom to hunt and forage. Ancient citizens had the opportunity to contribute to the good of their cities and to glorify themselves in the process. But surely, from Kaczynski's point of view, that's just another surrogate activity. This is ultimately why I think Kaczynski's manifesto has limited appeal and why it's so easy to find online. The state doesn't feel the need to make it difficult to read this. The concept of freedom, which Kaczynski advances, is not particularly appealing. It's not clear why we should privilege going through the power process over all other values. Why are all activities unrelated to survival surrogate activities? And why should we assume that people living in primitive societies were content and happy? Anyone who has lived in a small town or attended school with the same classmates for a number of years knows that small groups involve a lot of coercion, bullying, and social manipulation. What peers consider cool in school has far more power over students' day-to-day lives than the state ideology the school system tries to pass down. Yes, high school is terrible because it's a grim, impersonal system that is very much like a prison, but it is also terrible because it's a highly personal environment. Lots of kids don't like each other, and they let each other know about it. The school and the tribe aren't altogether different from one another. Would we have been happier if we spent our school days hunting and foraging? Would we have been nicer to each other? I doubt it. I do think people want to feel like they're making a difference, that their lives matter, but that doesn't require that they obtain the means of subsistence by their own effort. 
I think it requires something like a combination of the things the Romans, Marx, and Weber emphasize. We need libertas. We need freedom from domination. And once we've gotten free of domination, we need to be able to adopt values and live our lives in accordance with them. In modern times, there are two main obstacles. The first is that most of us are not free from domination. Most of us are dominated by employers and by market incentives more broadly, and therefore we are not free to adopt values and live our lives in accordance with them. Second, even those of us who get free from domination often lack the education necessary to make a mature choice about values. Instead, we make immature choices, choosing values that are themselves incompatible with the maintenance of any kind of order. Kaczynski's conception of freedom is ultimately immature in precisely this sense. You can't have Kaczynskian freedom and have the kind of order in which you could make a mature choice to value Kaczynskian freedom. If you have Kaczynskian freedom, then all the books about different ways of understanding the good are invitations to pursue surrogate activities. If we pursue surrogate activities, we'll end up pursuing all the technologies that make it possible for us to pursue surrogate activities. We can't pursue those technologies, so we can't read those books. We have to burn them, along with all the science textbooks. How do we get people to make mature choices? Well, we have to socialize them so as to prevent them from making immature choices, and that socialization itself curtails their freedom to choose. This is the most interesting thing about Max Weber's argument. There is a real tension between freedom and the cultivation of political maturity, and the one very quickly tries to swallow the other. In the society where there is total freedom to choose any value set, you get immature value sets that attack the order. In the society where maturity is enforced, the choice is so heavily restricted that choosing becomes meaningless. Weber's modern state is trapped between the scylla of immaturity and the charybdis of totalitarianism. Attempts to balance the two are unstable, and each tends to generate an overreaction in the opposite direction. Any answer to the question, which simply tries to subordinate all value conflict to a single dogma, answers the question in the totalitarian direction. Kaczynski proposes to end the totalitarianism of technology, but his manifesto demands that we submit to the totalitarianism of his understanding of freedom. His understanding of freedom dictates every other feature of the society he proposes, just as the imperatives of economic development dictate every feature of the system he deplores. He has replaced one form of instrumentalization with another. I don't think his view is really very different from the thing he's opposing. It's just another dogma, and modernity is full of dogmas that wish they were hegemonic. If we really want to get outside of modernity, we need to escape this modern obsession with replacing the Catholic orthodoxy of the Middle Ages with some other orthodoxy. We will never return to the Catholic consensus or replace that consensus with some other consensus. Scientism and primitivism are both pretenders to the Catholic throne. To escape modernity, we have to stop looking for pretenders for ideologies to fill that gap. We have to find a way of doing politics that isn't grounded on a quest for an ever-elusive, ultimate ideological victory. Very interesting. Very. I, I was really like really uh, excited to see what everyone's response to this would be. Aside from anything, I found it very funny. Like his, his, uh, his caricatures are very funny. But maybe, okay, so in response to what Benjamin said in, in relation to what Nina said, what is the difference between the leftism he critiques and, let's say, the primitivism he espouses? It seems to me very similar. 
I I don't think so at all. I mean, I kind of want to defend him a little bit here. I think, <laughs> <laughs> I I mean, I think there is something very American about his image of freedom, which might be why his his manifesto is actually very appealing to a lot of people um, across the political spectrum, um, including I think anarchists who might be kind of more on the left in other ways, not the leftism he describes, but rather. You know, also in the tradition of like Paul Goodman and, and Illich again, um, you know, who's a kind of strange Catholic anarchist ultimately in some ways. And um, we could describe him like this. And but also, I mean, it, it would appeal to the kind of strain of the pioneer, like the frontiers man and the, the image of um, America as this kind of uh, Americans as this kind of um, going boldly forth. You know, I mean, obviously. Kaczynski says there isn't really enough land to do the <laughs> the kind of thing that you might fantasize about that he did in a way the the cabin in the wood um but it is a perennial fantasy particularly in America I think I mean everywhere to some extent but it's I you know I mean I don't disagree with the kind of idea that autonomy and it's in the way he conceives it is a kind of modern idea Although I do think, and again, you know, Benjamin did suggest this, that it, it, it may be a kind of assumption that's underpinning ancient ideas of virtue. And I, I, I you know, even if it's not the, quite the same word, and, and Illich actually makes a similar point. I mean, he actually tries to defend an idea of autonomy um, against the, the kind of, um, you know, soul-destroying bureaucracies, you know, the, the, all of the forms of dependence that, that Kaczynski also outlines and, and Weber and Benjamin put that very well um and but i i do wonder if there, there isn't something in the appeal to nature and to um you know turning away from the modern world which isn't actually intuitively extremely appealing here like that it doesn't actually represent something of an alternative and perhaps one that we often fantasize about ourselves you know what would it be like if i didn't have to use email anymore or like could i go and live in a tent Oh, <laughs> but is that a fantasy? Because it's funny. Loads of my American friends, I rem- I've noticed over the year, like over the years, it's a very American thing to have a fantasy about going living, going and living in sort of like a, a homestead on your own, or like living, going van, you know, the van thing, living in a van or fending for yourself. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting when you when you say you know this boldly go before go where no one's come before you, it does sort of you know this sort of founding mythos of America, and it's been interesting to me recently seeing how. When we have the contemporary so-called left, I always say so-called left because to me they're not, it isn't the left, but actually more right than conservative right. But anyway, is because it's more mystifying the contradiction. And I think the left, I use Todd McGowan's definition, which is, you know, just embracing contradiction basically. But um, so you have this sort of, um, let's say, to the, the traditional conservative, like the Tucker Carlson conservative, who really doesn't like woke ideological corporate capitalism but is also a capitalist and very much hates socialism and then says that the the woke corporatism is actually socialism when it isn't so the question i've always sort of felt or i have felt recently is this interesting sort of like hangover of the cold war potentially or just like um immediate reaction of a, a type of american potentially that america equals capitalism and that capitalism equals freedom in this sort of sense that Kaczynski's um or it comes along with this pioneer sense that Kaczynski's kind of outlined it outlining 
where does America have to be tied to capitalism? I mean, I don't know, but it just, it just made me th- think of this and this idea recently of like how it's kind of funny to see the sort of the right mischaracterize contemporary capitalism as the left. Question. Have either of you ever read Henry David Thoreau or Ralph Waldo Emerson? Yes. Yes. Right. They get assigned in American (laughs) high school. I'm sure. And everybody reads them. So part of the impersonal state bureaucracies educational ideology is that young people must be taught this narrative about going off into the woods and living by yourself. Mm -hmm. And I think part of the reason that that is part of the curriculum is that it, it causes dissent in the United States to take on this kind of libertarian anarchist flavor, which Mm -hmm. is ultimately a rabbit hole that can't go anywhere. Yeah. And I think that's why it is emphasized so heavily in the schools. The resistance to the suburban society and and the the very, very planned and uh, gridded world that you live in, if you live in an American city or a suburb, the resistance to it always takes the form of this, go into the national forest and live on your own. It always takes that frame. And it's because in the school, that's the only kind of resistance that the school introduces someone mm-hmm. to who doesn't go on to study humanities or social sciences at university. Is this why Jay Rogan gets, what, an $180 million Spotify deal and is never cancelled? Because that's, you know, he's obviously sort of like a bit rebellious and, you know, whatever, interesting, not interesting, who knows, but like that he is just the sort of this this... This anarchisty kind of, or you know, this sort of Thoreauvian—is that what? I don't know what the adjective is. Not alternative, but it's maybe this sort of—it gives you a bit of a spiritual escape, but ultimately it's the same kind of thing and isn't really a threat. I, I think a lot of this stuff looks more radical from a European perspective because in Europe that's not the kind of radicalism that people are introduced to by schools at a young age. But in the United States, it is the radicalism that the schools themselves push as kind of an acceptable radical position. The only thing that's unacceptable about Kaczynski from the American point of view is that he kills people. But otherwise, having all of those views is a very conventional kind of libertarian view that lots of people in the United States have. Yeah. But always ineffectively. Uh, in, in this sense, I do feel like quite Ameri- American. I mean, I suppose you have, we have, you have Rousseau. You do have kind of various European bids to try to, um, you know, oppose civilization to nature and kind of back to nature sort of campaigns. And, and I mean, you know, like it does feature heavily in left and right discourse in the 20th century. I mean, you know, obviously Nazism tries to tap into a kind of nature worship um with various of its youth programs in particular um but there are leftist movements like woodland folk or whatever they're called and various other sort of cutie things that are basically trying to socialize nature and you know we looked at arcadia and and already but um, yeah. but even rousseau is an agrarian and you know, catholic natural law theory is about a kind of medieval society mm-hmm. not not primitivism as such I think a lot of European yeah. nostalgia is for 
pre-modern empires. It's for you know, some people. It's for you know nineteenth-century nation states. Some people. It's for pre-modern empires. Some people. It's for Catholic medieval ideology. Some people. It's for antique city-states. Mm-hmm. But you don't find a lot of Europeans who are just saying, "Let's." go live in the woods. And there aren't any woods really in Europe to live in anyway. <laughs> what? There are loads of woods. But, There's um, a woods right next door to me. I don't know where I, I mean, dare you. Scary. Sort um, of, but compared to the United States, oh, probably yeah, miles and miles there, of yes. wilderness. Whatever. Yes, it's not be. really the same. You know, like it's the point true. that Kaczynski makes about how, yeah, you ha- you'll have wild places, but they'll be so heavily curated by scientists yeah. that they won't really be wild. That's what I think about when I read Europeans talking about rewilding their green belts. Mm-hmm. It's just scientists curating a kind of ersatz nature. And if you go into a European park, it's not really a natural place. Uh, it's it's planned. The whole experience no, is I very mean, heavily planned. It's enclosures are a real thing. Um, I think you know it's it's but it's interesting just to think about the the nineties and the criminal justice bill, which was you know ninety four because one of the main things I mentioned before, but just just to reiterate was that this was a law not only against music and raves but it was against travelers you know and this included um sort of ethnic Romani travelers, but it also included this new type of traveler who were basically young people who wanted to just go around you know and not be pinned down and not have a house and you know, be in nature and be, you know, these kinds of things. And there was really a strong, a very, very strong political reaction against that as a possible lifestyle choice, such that it had to be criminalized because they did not want young people to do, to enter into that way of life. Um, so there's something interesting about the the state, you know, topographic control. Like it's like people have to be located you know it's against (laughs) against nomadism basically like nomadism is the problem like people going off grid is a problem from the state's point of view but do you do you think though because i i almost think the state isn't really the quote-unquote problem today but more the corporation controlling the state and so the corporate like over the last several years it has been sold to us the sort of freedom of being a freelancer and you can now you know work on your laptop and be anywhere be your own boss and get paid less and less and less and zero hours and but you're doing your you know photoshop jobs and what have you and you're online teaching and everything and this also is convenient to cor- to to the corporate mobility you know without the location of a person and the ability of a states to enact taxation on these mobile corporations you know it means that a, a, a worker is happy to flip from somewhere to the other or you know, this sort of there is there is this sort of new version of um, freelancey quote unquote freedom of not being tied to place or a job, but continuing the same model of market capitalism. So the same, you know, appropriation of surplus value, etc. So I, yeah, I guess the problem is it's like the changing of the parameters without changing the actual material. Yeah, I mean, this, you know, this, political economy doesn't do anything. This is like a total virtual nomadism. I mean, everyone's more pinned down than ever. Yeah. I mean, like lockdown. I mean, it's true. It's true. Like, yeah, it's technological. Yeah, I mean, but, they're, all but there is, <laughs> but there is, a, there is a thing though. There is a thing of like you know, you can get companies, for instance, now that you pay an amount to, and you can go and live in another country whilst you freelance. So there, there is there, like had that COVID work not happened, Kaczynski, because you're dependent on a large organization. That's so true. it's it's a delegated and therefore not genuine freedom from within his 
But I, I guess the, the the point being is that without like a shift in political economy, like you can't really do anything because it will just be controlled by a, a big. Even the nomad anyway. who stays off the internet, who drives a, a, a vehicle across the country and stops in in different uh, RV parks, that person is dependent on the technological system for gasoline and the roads for transport mm-hmm. and the manufacturers who make the RVs. So the kind of nomadism that is even more radical than that, I don't think Kaczynski would be impressed with. I think you know where the the. I think where the stronger argument against the position comes from ultimately is that I think that in general there's a tendency for people to focus on the evils of totalitarianism but not tyranny or the evils of tyranny but not totalitarianism. And what I mean by that is that a lot of people have a kind of acute sense of the evils of impersonal bureaucratic systems but then propose in response heavily personal environments where particular individuals could easily exercise tyranny. And then there's another set of people who are very, very focused on preventing particular people from exercising tyranny, but are really not at all aware of the problems of totalitarian and personal systems. Like if you look at, I'm often critical of left libertarians who like co-ops because they want to get rid of the boss who is the tyrant. But then they set up an impersonal coercive structure mm-hmm. in which people are dominated by the market, right? Yeah. And by market incentives and all of the relations are mystified. Also, by the same token, it goes the other way. There are some people who only see totalitarianism with impersonal systems, but then their cure to that involves putting people in situations where there can be, they can be dominated by particularly strong personalities. And if you go into, say an ancient tribal society, I think what you tend to find is that there are shamans, there are priests who do not obtain the means of subsistence by their own effort. You know, Thorstein Veblen in his theory of the leisure class starts with this discussion of where does the leisure class originate? It originates in the most primitive society with the priest and the shaman who doesn't obtain the means of subsistence by his own effort, uh, controls the group through social manipulation, uh, uses uh, all sorts of cultural socialization processes to shape the way everybody in the community thinks and behaves, all of their norms of behavior and conduct. And I think that that is probably just as invasive as the modern state, Mm -hmm. but it's personal because it's particular shamans, particular priests using particular godheads as means of controlling population. Yeah, I'm kind of into that, you see. I'm the sort of person that would join a cult. <laughs> I, I honestly think so. <laughs> like, if somebody set up, like, a really appealing nature cult, I'd be like, sure. <laughs> because- but it's, it's, it's interesting because, like, what you... Well, it, well, yeah, what you were saying, Benjamin, reminds me... I hate these sort of personal anecdotes, but anyway, I'm going to give a personal anecdote. <laughs> I went to one school, which was very, very, like, discipline, 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 and was horrendous in one way. Then I went to another school that had was total anarchy. And it's hard to, it's hard to work out which one was worse because you, you know, you don't escape, you don't escape, you know, Lord of the Flies or, you know, <laughs> but like, um, the, that was a bit much. Okay. It wasn't, it wasn't <laughs> quite that bad, but, um, but I guess the point being is I agree with you, Benjamin. I mean, this is why I like psychoanalysis and maybe it's like a little bit, you know, idealist and silly, but with with those particular situations, they did rely on at least a libidinal investment on the part of the parents to put the children through certain things. So if we can get away from a 
I would be okay. I would be for you know a cult of no no cult. If we had a cult that was like a cult a cult of contradiction, I'd be up for that because like if there's no promise, you know, there's no there's no there's nothing you're going to get to by enacting this or by enacting yeah. that. Yeah, have you seen? Then you don't um, stand this shit. Yeah, have you seen Wise Blood? This is a very interesting film in, in which somebody sets up a church of no church, and it's is this the guy that's like I can't remember what. When it's from, but it's it's an interesting film on this point, basically what it means to kind of set up a non-religion religion and and all of these sort of contradictions. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know, but but I think Kaczynski's the solitary nature of it is 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 maybe important, isn't it? Because if you like, I mean, the only way of being completely autonomous and 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 you know to practice austerity in the Aristotelian sense, which is also something that. Illich is very keen on, like he loves this word in tools for conviviality. And by, you know, we we associate austerity with some horrible neoliberal economic campaign. But what austerity really means or originally meant was simply not being distracted. And I think this is what Kaczynski is talking about with all of these kind of, um, you know, secondary involvements in these kind of, like, sorry, what's the, what's the word he uses? Um Benjamin, you were talking about it a lot. You know the the distractions. What's what's his word for distraction? The surrogate. Oh, sur- surrogate yeah. The surrogate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so basically, what it means it to be to live in an austere manner or to 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 live austerely is to not be distracted. Basically, is to is to sort of be in the real. Which I I know that Helen, you probably you would see as a, as the psychotic desire right no do you know what i i it sounds like beyond neurosis like i would agree that beyond neurosis is yeah so if you're spending all your time in a field like who needs psychoanalysis i mean honestly genuinely in the sense in the sense that sounds silly but like in the sense that psychoanalysis is a practice a very important one that grows up around a particular kind of bourgeois society and it addresses itself in the first place and continually to the kinds of neuroses that are are, are that turn up <laughs> in yeah, relation yeah. to the bourgeois family and, and civilization and and all of the complexities of social life and so on and there's there, there surely is a very very simple sense in which if one lives in a self-sustaining manner, insofar as that's possible, um, one escapes simply by removing all of those things. One run, one is exposed, as Kaczynski says, to um, to the risk of death and dying of disease. Right? If you take yourself out of all of these medical bureaucracies and all of these things, and Illich makes this point too, in a way that that the kind of what it means to actually turn your back on modern life is to embrace suffering and death, right? Uh, to, to be exposed to them directly and not have them mediated as your imminent possibility. But in a way, this is a way that this is what Kaczynski is defending. It's it's the a way of living which is a way of dying without mediation, mm-hmm. I think. But Aristotle was contemptuous of the barbarian lifestyle. For Aristotle in nature man cannot exist only beasts or gods exist and since the barbarians are not gods they are beasts mm-hmm. but this is where the social aspect this is why it's complicated because because kaczynski's kind of completely in a way um self-enclosed or almost like autistic individualism or as a model of autonomy is is obviously not replicable right this is not i mean he talks about scale but 
you know, even when people go back, as Benjamin says, to defend, defending guilds and defending, these still have, like, for example, women, they still have reproduction, they still have the possibility of, like, social, you know, socially perpetuating themselves. Whereas Kaczynski's kind of hyper-isolated model, mm-hmm. it, you know, is a, is a, is a, a, a extinction model, you know. It's more Theravada. More what? Theravada. It's, it's more... Early, early Buddhism. Right. Oh, oh, that, where you go oh, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, and yeah. withdraw and you live Sorry. the hermetic yeah, yeah. lifestyle. Yeah, it's, exactly. It's more monastic in that, in that way, yeah. I, I kind of, well, it's interesting, just like several things that you're saying. Like, first of all, like, in a way, Kaczynski is the modern man. We're in like an autistic age, almost, as you say, the solipsistic age, you know, you know, uh, talking to ourselves on social media, you know, as we, uh, mono, you know, the age of the monologue, we said this so many times. But, you know, also, okay, so... We are we are divided beings. We're born twice, and we have this. We operate at these sort of two levels of both knowing and not knowing, and what have you. Um, and I, I think the thing is that basically, so yes, psychoanalysis developed because of the alienation of industrialization, and hysteria was this great symptom that Freud recognized. That it was a new symptom, and there are all these you know different epochs and gender different you know because nature is nurture you know so. Every every epoch has this sort of this alienation engendering a symptom, and I think the thing is that psychoanalysis was, you know, arose in a response to, to 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 you know bourgeois, whatever early twentieth century, you know, things that were being being noticed. But I think there is a like a, a truth, you know, a sort of eternal truth. <laughs> I mean, like truth, truth of anything, sort of you know, eternal truth. But there is a truth to it that applies beyond just that epoch. And I also think that. The 20th century, you know, so much of psychoanalysis was sequestered into identitarianism because obviously we, we, we are within an identity and we are individuals who exist and we have our own individual stories and what have you and some crossover between, let's say, women who experience this and men who experience this. But I think actually the, the real truth of psychoanalysis, and maybe this is the 21st century shift, is to do with the universal and the universal truth of psychoanalysis is beyond gender. And I think this is really where the political of psychoanalysis is, which is the, the universal of lack, which is everybody, you know, despite being psychotic or neurotic or what have you. And I think that there is something, you know, that the, the psychoanalysis can help, or at least the philosophical truth of psychoanalysis can help the psychotic as well, because they too are alienated. And also, so... The thing is that we are only human insofar as we are born to speaking subjects. So we already, we are human because of community. Like we only become that which identifies us as human beings, basically speech, or experiencing the antagonism of the universe at the level of our own subjectivity because of the speech of our parents. So we are only human because we are community beings. I wonder if... Maybe some of this is to do with the Hellenistic period. Because, so Theravada Buddhism never aspired to have it, to have this kind of life be something that everybody could live, never aspired to dissolve Indian society into a, a world where everybody goes and meditates in the forest. There was no universal attempt on the part of Theravada. It was always an elite thing. And that's why you have this narrative of you have to go through a number of lifetimes before you will live the lifetime in which you will be able to be the monk, right? 
And then in the West, you have Plato and Aristotle making this overtly political argument that man's nature is really uh, best realized in the city, in the artificial environment, and not in the wilderness. And then you have the Hellenistic period where there's this mixing of these two ideas. And so you get Mahayana Buddhism, which is Buddhism infected with the Platonic desire to do something good. And you have Stoicism and Epicureanism and Skepticism, which are Greek philosophies, which are focused around the individual and the individual being able to be good in themselves, independent from the social. Right. And then Christianity, which again tries to hybridize this, focusing on the soul of the individual, whether the individual's soul is, is virtuous, but then also wanting to have this kind of Christian commonwealth on earth, this political unity which reflects that moral story. And I think what happened in the Western, the Western interaction between early Greek philosophy and early Indian philosophy produces this contradiction in which individually you're supposed to be personally virtuous in the way that the Theravada Buddhist monk is supposed to be personally virtuous. But then there's this expectation that there will be some kind of political instantiation of this individual journey. And that's, of course, impossible. And so the, the, the Greek or Roman who is trying to universalize the Theravada Buddhist journey get so involved in the political that they can never actually realize the Theravada lifestyle anyway. And then in trying to politically instantiate something which is necessarily an individual path, they create political societies that are riven with contradictions and don't work. And I think Christianity is the product of this kind of botched East-West synthesis. It's not Western. It's a botched East-West synthesis, which comes out of the Hellenistic mixing of East with West and the mutual misunderstandings of that period. And I think to a large degree, we're, we're living in an intellectual tradition, which is the product of a misunderstanding. And so we're trying to do things that don't fit together because we have taken things from Theravada and we've taken things from Plato and Aristotle that just don't go together. And we're trying to mash them together in a way that doesn't fit. So we're trying, we're trying to, because I do agree that I think we're, we're in this epoch of synthesis or attempted synthesis, but there's no such thing. I think, I think we were it. in it in the Hellenistic era, in the, in the late Roman Empire. Uh, I think we were in this synthesis. And so now people are trying to do it again, but they're acting as if the synthesis hasn't happened yet. It already happened. It happened in the Hellenistic era. Mm -hmm. The synthesis already occurred. What we call Western philosophy is Indian-inflected Greek philosophy. What we call Christianity is Indian-inflected Greco-Persian Judaism, right? So we already have a synthesis, but we then associate it with the West because you go through this period where Islam spreads in the Middle Ages and, and you have this kind of Catholic West that sees itself as distinct and separate from an Orthodox East and then an Islamic East. But all of those things were originally part of a Roman, Romano-Persian Middle East that was full of contact, mm -hmm. right? So I, I think that to a large degree, we haven't really worked out, and it's difficult to work it out because the historical record is so hit and miss, uh, exactly how these different ideas were, were stitched together. But I think they were clearly stitched together in ways that don't work. 
And so I think what we have is a, a tradition that was botched in the Hellenistic era and in the late Roman Empire, even before Christianization. I'm not well versed enough for this to be able to have an opinion. But I, I don't see why, in principle, like blended <laughs> systems aren't, you know, I mean, tradition exists for a reason. Like there's a reason why certain things persist because they work, quote unquote. Right. right, but none of these things did work. What we kind of are, are living in since the late Roman Empire and the period of Christianization is a sequence of regimes that don't last very long in terms of human scale. You know, the Roman Empire is a really long lasting regime and everything that has come after it has been constantly riven with contradiction and gradually unwinding. Even the medieval societies were you know, the Catholic consensus is only uh, instantiated insofar as you distance Catholicism from Greek Orthodoxy and from Islam. But the whole Roman world is schismatic between Catholicism, Greek Greek Orthodoxy, and Islam. And then very quickly, the Western tradition becomes schismatic within Catholicism, and Islam becomes schismatic. So the whole Roman Empire never manages to constitute itself around any particular form of Christianity. That consensus was always something which seemed to hold in particular regions for a a while, but only on the basis of viewing those regions as entirely separate from the other parts of the Roman Empire, which had gone in different directions. But this is why you need to be an esoteric perennialist, and then you can see the the underlying truth of all incompatibility of all of these things. Um, but yeah, but how, can, how can the Theravada Buddhist monk, uh, how can you build a state or build a whole social way of living for everybody around something which is specifically grounded on withdrawing from society and not participating yeah. in production? But you, you can't. But, it's, but the, the thing is, if you have a society that permits a certain number of people to do that and protects them, this is why philosophers, for example, need protection, because they're basically uh, in danger. And, and this is why you have kind of like internal protections for things like monasteries and nunneries as well, I think. I agree with that. Yeah. But then Kaczynski isn't proposing to you know, create some kind of space where people can do this. Kaczynski is suggesting that technological society will gradually abolish all such spaces. Yeah. And therefore, the only thing you can do is destroy the entire industrial technological system and plunge everybody, whether they want to be free or not, into this setting where they have to go out and, and obtain the means of subsistence. But even the Theravada Buddhist monk, um, you know, would would typically end up asking for donations from people off the street yeah. and kind of living off the community. The Theravada Buddhist monk wasn't a great naturalist. He was a great meditator who was also good at creating a kind of spiritual awe in yeah. ordinary people no, and, the and getting them to... Yeah, yeah, the ancient Greek philosophers accepted gifts, not money, you know, so like right. how to differentiate themselves from the sophists. But they, yeah, they, they and Diogenes is the, the uber parasite in, 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 a, in a joke, in the comedic way, right? I mean, he literally lives off the it's, scratch. It's funny because Diogenes is the uber parasite from within the Greek point of yeah. view, but the average Buddhist monk is Diogenes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, exactly. And I, I mean, there are some strange bits in the Kaczynski where he says that people who sort of believe what he believes should have loads of children as well, which seems oddly in tension, you know, with... How with, are they going to do that and, and well, have this extremely... 
<laughs> you need you can't just have sort of men living in in huts. You you need some women if you're going to have some more children. Particularly if you weren't going to use any technology. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and then on top of that, the issues with child rearing. How do you prepare children to embrace this particular value set without plunging them into a social world in which they can be pick, you know, they can pick up other value sets? And I think that's the the freedom maturity tension. Anytime you have a value that the only way you can ensure that the value remains dominant is to make sure that nobody encounters other values, you have something that is is pretty authoritarian. I'd, I'd still join his cult, though, to be honest. Mm. I mean... But you can only yes, do that from are... the position of having grown up in this society, which yeah. gave yeah. you access to all of these values from which you then freely chose this one. And your relationship to it would be different if you were second or third generation and never had access to the educational structure that gave you the capacity to choose. It is interesting, the phenomenon of the child that grew up in the cult. There's a lot of... Uh... People, I mean, I know a few people who grew up in cults, very strange experience, and they don't, you know, they're not happy about it. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I guess maybe we can continue on the B side, Benjamin. I want to ask you about contradiction, because I do think that in contradiction is intractable. So there's no, there's no, I don't think there's such thing as synthesis. But then we do have to find a way to have a society that has meaning that people can buy into. But anyway, we'll go. Uh, yeah, we'll do that on the B side. And <laughs> okay. if you want to listen to that B side, you can support us on Patreon. Thank you guys so much for listening. And we'll see you over there, hopefully. And if not, have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye bye. Bye. Goodbye.